Hello, Learning Curve listeners. This is Gerard Robinson. Another week coming together. Another week bringing in good guests. But this week, I'm actually solo. Kara uh, is on a much-deserved vacation. But we still say the show must go on. So my story of the week is important, and it comes from Disability Scoop, uh, and it's by Michelle Dement, and it's from August 30th, 2021. Feds say nearly every state is short on special educators. So listen to what she said. Across the nation, all but two states, New Hampshire and New Mexico, are projecting a shortage of educators trained to meet the needs of students with disabilities in the upcoming school year. And this is based upon information state submitted to the U.S. Department of Education and the database that it maintains. Some states and districts are so desperate right now to recruit special educators that they're actually dangling thousands of dollars before uh, potential teachers to hire them into the field. We all know some of us who have uh, a family member or a child in the household who has a disability, this is a big issue. And we know that because of COVID, not only were 74 million plus children impacted one way or another uh, in how they learn, how it was delivered and where they actually sat or not, but we know that the gap for many students who have disabilities actually widened. And so with the billions of dollars uh, CARES Act money that Congress approved, that was sent to governors. A number of them are doing some interesting and innovative things with it. And some of them, in fact, have targeted that money towards students with disabilities. Of course, there's also federal money set aside for that. But when a reporter can actually announce that only two states, again, New Hampshire and New Mexico, aren't saying that they have a shortage uh, of special education teachers or teachers to work with students with disabilities. That's a big challenge. And so one recommendation I would have is to contact uh, your friends who you know are um, educators of students who have disabilities and see who in their network can help you out. I'd also say take a look at um, Respectability, uh, their website. Respectability is a national nonprofit organization headquartered in Maryland. And, and it focuses on, you know, 55 million plus adults uh, who have a disability and who are trying to get jobs, but who are also trying to work with people in this field. Uh, I'm on the board of, uh, of uh, respectability, so that's one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in this subject. And what I would recommend you do, take a look for a post titled Respectability Fellow Helps Create Educational Guide That Helps thousands. And it's by Nicole Homerin, and she is actually a Respectability National Leadership Program Fellow. I had a chance to participate in a conversation about students with disabilities in education uh, some months ago. And she, in fact, is not only someone who's involved in education in the Los Angeles area, she also worked with the group. Uh, and in that role, she helped to create the educational resource guide to support distant learning for students with disabilities. So I would tell state leaders, educators, superintendents, and school board members, if you're looking for a resource guide to help you, that's one place to go to. She's also connected with a lot of teachers uh, who work with students with disabilities. So that is one place that I, I would look. So that is my story of the week. And as you know, every week we bring on wonderful guests from across the country to talk about education in different uh, parts and different aspects of American life. And today is no different.
Today, I'm joined by Nancy Poon Liu. She is the incoming senior director at the Bahala Foundation, where she will be leading their K-12 math funding initiatives. She is also the co-founder of the Advanced Education Research and Development Firm Fund and served as the chief operating officer for its EF Plus math program. She previously served as the executive director at the venture firm GSV and was a senior official in the Obama administration, where she led the U.S. Department of Education's strategic planning and performance. She is a very good social entrepreneur. So, Nancy, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thanks so much for having me, Gerard. I've had a chance to attend events in the past when we could meet in person, uh, sponsored or in partnership with GSV. So I'm always glad to be associated with people who do great work there. So since we're talking about entrepreneurship, let me go to the first question. You've had a great, strong, dynamic career in social entrepreneurship, and you've worked both in the public sector and in government to improve education outcomes for poor and minority students. Would you share with our listeners the work that you do leading EF plus math program and the kinds of results you and your team have been able to achieve with students across all zip codes? Sure, Gerard. The EF plus math program is the first of several programs that are part of the organization I co-founded, the Advanced Education Research and Development Fund. And the program overall brings together diverse teams of educators, researchers, and developers to tackle education issues that disproportionately affect Black, Latino, and low-income students. So EF plus math stands for executive function plus math and has a specific mission to challenge the way people think about how students most effectively learn math. So our ultimate goal is to significantly increase the number of students in grades three through eight who are proficient or advanced in math by strengthening the executive functioning skills that research have really indicated is a key driver to success in math. So when you think about executive functions, it's really defined as the skills that allow us to plan, focus, multitask, and hold information in our heads. You can think of it kind of, Gerard, like an air traffic control system for your mind. So by better understanding and applying the neuroscience of how executive functions help students best learn math, we work to increase the number of students who can be proficient or advanced in math. Great. As someone who struggled with math in elementary school all the way through high school, I surely could have used your program. So Mm -hmm. when I think about what you just mentioned, I've got to take a little, I guess, moonwalk back in history and to go back to Sputnik. One. And to go from there, you know, the 1950s all the way up to a nation at risk report, which was published in 1983. And we've had American education policymakers for a very long time say they're concerned about our young people's ability to not only learn math, but for our country's schools to actually generate high quality STEM graduates who are able to compete internationally. So after 50 years of efforts from D.C. and state capitals, What do you see as the current and future status of our ongoing struggle to produce more uh, students who are strong in math and science? Yeah, Gerard. So while there's been increasing national attention on the importance of STEM education, particularly with the growing STEM careers in the last few decades, I think one of the biggest challenges is that STEM education, particularly math education, just trails significantly behind literacy education on a public awareness level. We can see this starting with our youngest learners. There's always been a very effective national literacy campaign to make families and the public aware of the importance of reading, talking, and singing to kids from the time they're babies. You probably hear commercials about this all the time on the radio. But the concept of that Mm -hmm. word gap is so prolific in mainstream media that it was even featured in this episode on the Netflix show, Orange is the New Black, where an incarcerated mother emphasized the importance of making sure that her baby won't suffer the word gap. We need early awareness of 
math education to rise to that same level of awareness where families and communities are incorporating math learning from an early age. For example, so many schools send home weekly reading logs in elementary schools and even into middle schools. They are required at least suggested summer learning, summer reading list that we see every summer at every grade level through high school. And if you walk into any public library in any community, you're likely going to see summer reading challenges sponsored by the public library. We really don't see the equivalent emphasis for math, which really leads to more students struggling with math because it's introduced in such a formal setting in school. So that's how we start to hear phrases like, I'm not a math person. And that mentality starts to extend beyond students because teachers, particularly elementary school teachers are off, who often teach all the subjects in a classroom, may themselves have not had specific training in math. And so they don't think of themselves as a math person. And so this is an ongoing struggle that starts in a young age. As someone who works with adults who are in prison and who work with uh, justice-involved youth, the one thing that many of them say they wish they could have done something about earlier was education and particularly literacy. Because when we think of mathematics, we often think of numbers. But as you're telling us, if you don't have the literacy, the agency or the function to be able to comprehend word problems, it's going to be pretty difficult to do some of the other work. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And as the dad of three daughters, we know how in some instances our schools often educate girls away from math and science uh, and toward the humanities and social science. And I have three daughters now who are interested in STEM. So glad that you're, you're moving forward with that. Let's take this conversation across the water. As someone on the, who grew up in California, I would say the Pacific mm -hmm. Ocean, but now I'm on the East Coast. When we think about the highest performing countries in K-12 math, including Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, and Hong Kong, they have very strong math standards that prepare their students for you know, success and access to Algebra 1 by eighth grade. In 2008, a National Mathematics Advisory Panel report called Algebra 1 the gateway course for all high-level math courses moving forward, particularly in the STEM pipeline. Today, no U.S. states have K-12 math standards that prepare their students for Algebra 1 in eighth grade. What should we do on that level so they can prepare our students to compete not only against each other here, but globally? Yeah, that's a great question, Gerard. There's been a lot of recent debate on state math standards across many states, and it's been in the news a ton. In states like California, Virginia, which are proposing to restrict differentiated math instruction prior to or even through the later years of high school. That essentially means that schools can no longer track students in math, and every kid in the same grade level would take the same math courses at the same time, at least past Algebra 1. This has often been pitted in popular media as an equity versus excellence debate, where in what many educators often refer to as the race to calculus, because calculus has for a long time been seen as the ultimate prize in rigorous math education, at least as far as it's being valued by college admissions in the past few decades. But I really don't think it's an either or situation, but really a yes and situation where we need to not only ensure that all students have equal access to high-level math classes, but we need to stop and re-examine what type of math should actually be taught to prepare all students to compete in STEM fields globally. Not surprisingly, calculus itself is not needed in nearly all careers, not even STEM. I mean, Gerard, I really challenge you to think about when was the last time you used calculus in work or even day-to-day -day life? Zero. Yes, exactly. So if you think about it, you probably, however, Gerard, have used statistics and maybe data science more broadly to interpret information and apply it in your work or life. 
you might be interpreting an education research report or looking at understanding the validity of vaccine to make healthcare decisions for your family. Or maybe you enjoy baseball and you're just applying the statistics to try to figure out who's going to win the game. But data science is a core part of life in most high demand careers today and in the future. So I really think that in order for American students to compete globally in STEM fields and beyond, we need to shift our obsession and state standards away from fixing this race to calculus to see like, how do we make it more equal? How do we get more people to calculus? How do we all run this race together to think about, are we running the right race? And how we can better incorporate data science into our math curriculum. And that means it might be through like an integrated math approach where statistics, data science, the use of data is infused into the broader curriculum, whether it's social studies or history, so that we can understand how math and data is a part of it, or in targeted courses like statistics and other relevant areas actually being offered in high school, which is probably more applicable in life than calculus. What you have said in that answer is so amazing because it touches on the politics of mathematics, what doors are opened or not. And I like your phrase, the race to calculus. I finished high school without ever having Algebra 1. I didn't pass Algebra until I was 20 years old. And so I know what doors did not open to me. My classmates who were able to have higher level math courses, very, very different doors open for them. But you're right. They took calculus. And if you ask them today, many of them who have graduate degrees, how often they use it, besides my friends who are engineers or statisticians, they, they don't. And so that's a that's a really good debate. I'd like to follow up with you and, and see some of the work you're doing at your company, because that's a big political debate, because it's also walking across uh, ethnic, racial and economic lines, because some will say if you don't offer calculus, then you're going to keep out poor students of color and others, even though I went to school with people of color of different races who are from poverty, who got degrees in mathematics and studied calculus. So. More on that to come, but thank you so much for putting that in context for us. When I think about the suburbs uh, in the United States and parents like me and my wife who are really big proponents of after-school programs, particularly after-school math programs. In fact, as we speak right now, my daughter is online in one of the programs. It's not Kumon or the Russian School of Mathematics, but some people use that for their children. American education has long preferred a constructivist approach or what we call the hands-on approach to math instruction, even after decades of students have lagged behind. So getting to what you mentioned for about how we need to think differently about math, does American K-12 education embrace the kind of academic content and pedagogy and STEM that's likely to deliver the results and equity we seek? Well, Gerard, my husband and I are definitely with you and your wife and that we're also big proponents of after-school program and math. And I think your question is another great example where I feel we need much more of a yes and versus an either or approach to math education. So while hands-on math instruction is typically viewed as more engaging and applicable, the challenge is that it requires students to have a strong foundation in the fundamentals and the logic in order to apply it meaningfully in a hands-on or project-based approach. So for instance, you can develop a variety of super engaging projects that involve students applying multiplication, division, fractions and percentages in real-life scenarios that engage them to employ mathematical thinking. But if they're struggling with mathematics fluency, things like the multiplication tables coming quickly, or haven't had enough practice applying the equivalency between fractions or percentage, they can't fully engage in the hands-on learning because they don't have the foundational skills. 
So it's actually not surprising that in higher income communities, families are flocking to Kumon and Russian School of Math, as well as Mathnasium or other supplementary programs out there. I personally have a second grader who's in one of these programs, and I can also attest mm-hmm. that it is very uh, effective and quite innovative and don't simply employ the math drills that some might imagine it does. So in fact, during the pandemic, there were many anecdotal reports that enrollment in these enrichment programs dramatically increased. So it's not that the families who have the means to choose these programs don't believe that there's a value to math curriculum taught in schools today in K-12 public schools. It's more likely that they believe that there are also benefits to the math methodologies that these alternative programs provide as well as an emphasis and a repetition that's necessary to be strong in the foundation. So I do think that the American K-12 system needs to adapt and embrace some of the best practices that we're learning from some of these alternative programs and incorporate them into the mainstream K-12 math curriculum. I see the after-school programs when they were in person, but also virtual, uh, as supplement, not supplant. And for a lot of families, they're choosing the programs to supplant for a host of reasons, we're in a position academically, economically for the former, but that's also a reality uh, that a lot of us have to deal with every day. Let me go to uh, my last question, and this has something to do with schools of education. Uh, I attended two schools of education, so I'm a big fan, and they play a big role, of course, in approving and educating our K-12 uh, teachers. Would you discuss the role that teacher preparation and state licensing tests and regulations play in preparing more students for the STEM fields? And as an entrepreneur who thinks about teaching and the delivery model very differently than most of us, what would be your recommendations to leaders on what we can do differently? Gerard, America has long struggled with two aspects of the shortage of STEM teachers. So one, we don't have enough qualified STEM teachers, particularly in the middle and high school years, where schools typically have dedicated math and science teachers. People who major in math and other STEM fields in college have lucrative career options, particularly with the boom of the technology sectors, which they're often choosing over teaching. And two, we don't Mm -hmm. have enough teachers who are spending the time and the training in elementary school years to be able to teach math effectively in the K to five years. So as a result, from K to 12, we have STEM courses that are often taught by teachers who themselves are not educated, or even comfortable with STEM because they at some point probably consider themselves not a math person because they didn't major in math or they never liked math. So we need reform to make it easier to attract and retain STEM trained professionals into teaching without the significant investment of time and money into the certification process that is often a barrier to entry. So we need incentives um, both at the state and federal level to attract and retain more professionals into teaching with alternative and expedited ways to determine qualifications so that we know that they know the subjects they're teaching and that they also have the skills to be able to convey that information effectively in their classroom and that they that the state approved schools of education can't be the only pathways. At the same time, we're still going to have many teachers, particularly in the elementary level, who are going to be generalists because they teach whole classrooms and they teach all subjects. We need to redesign the trainings for those teachers so that math is as critical as reading, as we talked about earlier, so that it's an integral part, it's an early part, and math is infused into history, into social studies, into science, so that teachers are comfortable with it and students see math naturally as a part of education. And that takes dedicated, focused training for teachers. Absolutely. I like the fact that you mentioned the incentive portion because incentives matter. 
And you're correct. People who have degrees in a STEM field have higher earning potential coming out of undergrad than people who do not. I think about my own set of roommates, one who was honors graduate in economics. His father, in fact, uh, was a professor and his mother, in fact, was a school teacher. He would have made a great teacher, but he decided to become an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And I understand another was an engineer. He also came from a family of educators. He would have been a great STEM teacher, particularly an engineering teacher um, at the high school level, but he decided to go and to pursue um, a master's degree at the University of Illinois, and now he's in the private sector. You know, one of the things that I've tried to get corporations and philanthropists to think about is endowing chairs in STEM at the high school level. We do it for college. If you're a chemist or some type of scientific field or a company focused on mathematics, it could even be in the defense industry. They receive a lot of tax dollars from us in terms of grants, and they'll endow chairs at universities. I'm trying to get those leaders to think about endowing a chair or two or three at a high school that will not only cover the salary of the teacher in that spot, but give him or her a summer internship where they can work anywhere from four to six weeks during the summer, making the same salary they would have made had they been a full-time employee with the goal of taking that information back to the school and have hands-on learning. I don't know a lot of people who've bitten on that yet, but as an entrepreneur, as you walk around and talk to people, feel free to float the idea around because <laughs> that's going to be one way to incentivize people like who we know to go into teaching, even if it's for five years versus going straight into the, um, into the marketplace. Absolutely, Gerard. I like how you think. Here's just a follow-up question based upon some of the things you have. What attracted you to entrepreneurship and why did you decide to hang your uh, your wagon to the education part of entrepreneurship when you could have done it with something else? Yeah, I education is deeply meaningful to me, Gerard. I'm a first-generation college graduate, so neither of my parents completed high school and neither of them came to America speaking English. So I attended K-12 public schools in Boston, uh, and really education was what changed my life trajectory, getting me a college degree, launching my career, and enabling me to have a lot of life choices. And so to me, knowing the differences, what education did for my life and what college degree did for changing my life trajectory, I wanted to make a difference in education so that more and more students who come from low-income backgrounds know that their zip code does not determine their future and that education can be the great changer. Absolutely. Like you, I'm a first generation college graduate. And September 30 years ago is when I stepped into my first classroom as a fifth grade school teacher with all the ideas of trying to change the world. And 30 years later, have made uh, some good strides and um, I'm still moving forward. So, Nancy, first of all, thank you so much for joining me here at The Learning Curve. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your ideas, your challenging thoughts and questions uh, for those of us who wake up and go to school every day trying to think about what can we do on the policy side of the fence, but in the classroom to bring equity and to really expand access to middle-class uh, livelihoods for people who look for it. Feel free to uh, call on us at any time at The Learning Curve to be supportive of your work. And as I know, every good man who's married has a good person behind them. And so I know Tom has, has a good person behind him. So I know now why he's as good as he is. Thanks so much, Gerard. I really appreciate you having me today. Thank you. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, her husband and I just found out are on the board for iCivics. Uh, that's a great organization that's supporting technology and using it to talk about civics. And at any point in American history, we need to learn more about civics and how to be act civilly. It is now. So, Nancy, thank you for your time and look forward to uh, another conversation in the future.
Thanks so much, Gerard. Have a good day. And now I'm going to turn to the tweet of the week. And the tweet of the week, of course, is in education, but this moves us from the state level to the local level. So this is a a tweet from Kevin McCary on the Washington Monthly. This is from the Seattle Times. And it says a growing number of school board members across the United States are resigning or questioning their willingness to serve on a board as school board meetings have devolved into shouting contests over a host of contentious issues. One, of course, being masks in schools. I have a number of friends who are elected officials on the school board. I've had a chance to uh, work with leaders of state and national school boards. And I can tell you that's hard work. The majority of them are elected. A smaller majority are appointed and they do this job. They'll tell you not for the money, because while some get are paid, it's not a ton of money, but they do it because of their commitment to public education and to the common good. Some of them have simply become so frustrated with what's taking place at the local level that I understand why some of them are questioning as the song would say, should I stay or should I go? Well, that will be played out over time, uh, particularly as the new Delta variant makes its way into our schools. But that is my tweet of the week. And next week's guest is going to be as stellar as this week's guest was. It is Dr. Kate Clifford Larson, who is a New York Times bestselling biographer of Harriet Tugman and Fannie Lou Hamer. You will be glad to know that I won't do it alone. I'll be joined again by my co-host, Kara, again, who'll be coming back from a much-deserved vacation. As usual, thank you for joining the learning curve. Stay curious, stay involved, and keep up the good work. Thank you.